Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you today. How's everybody doing today? Good. Well, you look good. I hope you, I hope you feel good. You look good. I hope you'll be praying for our pastor, Chris Wall. He is on his way to New Orleans with Robin for the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention. You know, he's the president of Oklahoma Baptists and a member of the International Mission Board, and so there's some work there that's really significant that he needs to be a part of this week. And you may, throughout the week this week, hear different things about the decisions that are being made in New Orleans in regards to the National Convention of Southern Baptists, and there's some important things that are going on. There's some tensions that are there, and one of the things that I'm thankful for just about the way Southern Baptist life works is that every church is autonomous, and more specifically, more importantly than what happens at the national level, is just the reality that God has called you and me to this community in this generation to represent who He is, to live out our faith, and to share really just the gospel of His love and His mercy and the story of who He is right here at this time and in this place. And I'm just so thankful that we have the privilege of doing that today. And so I'm I'm glad that we get to do that. Uh, Go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Song of Solomon, I'd be willing to bet that if you've sat through many sermons that there's not been very many times you've heard a pastor say, turn in your Bibles to the book of Song of Solomon. But we're going to be in chapter 8, and we'll read it here in just a minute because there's some things I need to tell you about the book of Song of Solomon first. You know, if you've been in our Bible reading plan, and I'm so thankful for Wayne and Brad and the conversation they just had up here. If you've been in our Bible reading plan, uh, the last two days we've actually read, uh, if if you're all caught up, we're reading through Song of Solomon, you should finish today. And I know in your small groups today, you focused on Ephesians chapter 1. We read that earlier in the week, and we're going to take a look at Song of Solomon today. And then uh, today, we also started Philippians chapter 1. We're going to read uh, or we're going to reference a couple of verses in Philippians chapter 2 and 3 today. And so whether you're all caught up or a little bit behind or just getting started, I hope you'll join us in that Bible reading journey that we're taking. And so I think, I think that's a great thing. And we'll read Song of Solomon chapter 8 in just a little bit. I also know that our students are about to go to Falls Creek tomorrow. Are you guys excited about Falls Creek? That's, that's really good. Falls Creek's going to be fun. And I know when you think of Song of Solomon, there may be some things. Maybe you've never thought of that book before. Maybe you've never read it. One of the things that's just interesting about Song of Solomon... Well, there's several. First of all, it was written by Solomon. Uh, He's described in Scripture as the wisest, most successful king of Israel. And at the same time, he had 700 wives. Um, I'm not sure that that's very wise. Um, I think it illustrates that you can be described as wise, but not choose wisely at times. And I'm just thinking about, wow, 700 wives, that's that's 700 mothers-in-law. That's, that's great. What a great thing. Um, when I think about Solomon and his 700 wives, clearly you can be wise and not choose wisely. And then I think it just illustrates that even though he was successful, even though he was wise and didn't choose wisely, at some level in his heart, there was some arrogance that said, I just think I know better than God does because God throughout his scripture had defined what a healthy marriage looks like. And it's one man, one woman for life. That's what it looks like. And Solomon really let the spirit of his time 
kind of predetermined what his approach to marriage would really be. And so instead of following what Scripture says marriage should be, Solomon went, no, I'll just do it kind of the way the world does. And so he was a brilliant business leader. He was a brilliant politician. And in those times, with every business deal and every political deal, often a marriage was involved in that. And so he just decided, instead of following God's wisdom for marriage, I'll just follow the Spirit of our times. And it's tragic that he did that because Scripture's also clear that it says, and those wives turned Solomon's heart away from God. And so in all of these wives and all of these marriages, what we really see is the beginning of the fall of Israel because after Solomon is king is when the nation of Israel begins to fall apart. And so you see this man who is exceptionally wise and exceptionally successful who didn't make a wise choice in relationship to his relationships and in relationship to his marriages, and it began the downfall of a nation. It reminds me that as, as great as our nation is, that the, the strength of a nation is really the strength of our marriages and the strength of our relationships with one another. If you look back in Genesis, before there was sin, God established marriage for what it should be. Before God established the church, He established marriage, and He established marriage in the perfection of the garden. And so we see in Song of Solomon something that's really interesting. We see a lot of poetry because Solomon writes this book of poetry all about the relationship between a man and a woman. And it's really the romantic pursuit of a man and a woman. So whether you're waiting or dating, looking or married, I believe there's something in the Song of Solomon that we can hang our hat on, something that can encourage you, that can challenge you in your faith, and maybe something that, that you just need to know about how our relationships work. And so that's what we see in Song of Solomon. It's very poetic language, and it's the poetic language about the pursuit of a man and a woman romantically with one another. And through the book, through the book of Song of Solomon, we see them kind of long for one another. And then we see them court one another, date, date one another. You see that, that moment where they get married. You see this moment of conflict where one of them rejects the other. And then you see them come back together. And in their coming back together, there's a kind of celebration that happens. And there's forgiveness that's extended. There's repentance and confession that takes place. And then they walk together. It's just this very poetic example of a great relationship. They walk together through their entire lives. And we're going to read the very end of Song of Solomon to kind of see the end of the story as we talk about this. But I was thinking about specifically with the students going off to camp. And since this is kind of about dating and relationships, that, that one of the things just as a high overview of Song of Solomon we might do is I mean, he had 700 wives. Clearly, Solomon had game, right? Clearly, he could, he could drop a line, right? And you guys are going to camp. Maybe you're going to need to drop a line on somebody. I don't know. Something like, hey, you need to check your Wi-Fi. Why is that? Because I'm feeling a connection, right? Maybe that'd be a good way. Maybe that's a good line. Or maybe, maybe it's lunchtime and you're like, Hey, you and I, we're kind of like nachos with jalapenos. Why is that? Well, because you're kind of spicy and I'm kind of cheesy. <laughs> and so, you know, that's probably not a good way. That's probably a bad line. It's probably a bad line. But if you're reading Song of Solomon, there's this moment. Actually, from chapter 4 on, Solomon, he's smooth. And he is given some compliments to the woman that he's pursuing. And some of those compliments, well, it's poetry, Right? 
But beyond it being poetry, it's, a, it's many generations ago. It's a long time ago, different culture, different language. Like his, his language is like, wow, your hair is so beautiful. It's like a flock of goats running down a mountain. Your teeth are so white. They're, it's like some newly shorn ewes that have just been washed. I'm like, I don't think that's a very good compliment. And then, guys, if you're really hurting, maybe you and your wife are having a little spat and you're trying to find a good compliment. My favorite of all of Solomon's compliments is he looks at the woman he loves and says, your belly is like a heap of wheat. Try that this afternoon, guys. Just see. Actually, if you'll just look at the woman you're attracted to and use the words, your belly is like a heap, it doesn't really matter what word you put at the end of that. Your belly is like a heap of, I'm pretty sure you're not going to lose. Actually, um, I found this, and, and in case you need a reference, we have this available. But I found a picture that's a literal version of the woman described in Song of Solomon. And so, your neck is like a battlement, your trunk, your tongue drips honey, your nose is like the, you know, excuse me, your neck is like the, the, the Tower of David, your nose is like the battlement of Lebanon that points towards Damascus, and so... That red thing up on her temple, that's a pomegranate because her temple is like a pomegranate. Guys, have you ever complimented a woman's temple? Uh, like the temple right here, this part right here? It's just, so it's poetic. The, the language is quite poetic. And, and, and so someone drew that picture and put biblical references next to it. So in case, guys, your game is a little soft and you need a list of compliments, uh, there's, uh, this is a limited edition of print. It's available in the main for you. You can take it home. You can put it on your refrigerator and just be reminded to tell your wife her belly is like a heap of wheat. And so that's just awesome. But there's lots of ways, you know. So that, that's the book of Song of Solomon. It is the romantic conversations between a husband and a wife. It's very poetic. I've heard we, we dream in the beauty and the passion of poetry, but we live in the practicality of prose. And so sometimes with the best of intentions, we, we make some silly errors in our relationships, and that's, that's kind of difficult. But the other thing that's unique about Song of Solomon is that there are two Bible, two, two verses, excuse me, two books in the Bible that never mention God at all. There's just no reference to God at all. There's two books in the Bible that are like that. And the book of Song of Solomon is one of those two books. And it's really interesting. The other book that doesn't really mention God really at all is also a relationships book. It's also a book of the Bible that's pointing to this is what a godly relationship looks like. And I've often wondered, God, why'd you do that? Why, why, would you have an, why would you have an entire book of the Bible that doesn't really appear on its surface to be about you? And then he reminds me of two things. Well, first off, it is about me because there's some symbolism in here that we really need to catch and we'll, we'll talk about here in just a second. But, but beyond that, I'm reminded that for our world, frequently, the only picture they will ever have of God's relationship with His people is the relationship you have with the people you love. Frequently, the only picture that people will have of what God's relationship with humanity really is, 
will come not because they took time to read the Bible and not because they took time to hear some guy preach about it or talk about it or not because they went to a reliable, even a reliable source for this is who God is and this is who we are in relationship to who God is. It won't be because of that. It'll be because at some point they took a look at the way you relate to your spouse or they took, it the, uh, they took a look at the way you choose to date or how you choose to date or who you choose to date or whether or not you choose to date. They, they took a look at your relationships with people and they know you're a person of faith. And so they begin to form their opinion of who God is and what God thinks, not because they read His Word. They're not going to do that, most of them. They began to form their opinion of who God is and how He relates to His people because they watched you in your relationships with people. And so I think it's relevant. I think God's really intentional in going, hey, I'm going to write this whole poem about the pursuit of a man and a woman romantically with one another. And I'm not going to mention myself in this at all, but you're going to see me all over this book. And so all over Song of Solomon, you see God in this story, even though God is never directly referenced. And it is. It's the story of their longing for one another, their pursuit of one another, their romantic entanglement with one another, their courting, their dating, their marriage, their conflict, and then they're coming back together. And you get to Song of Solomon chapter 8, which is what we're going to read from, beginning in verse 5, and, and you see kind of the end of their time together. Now, I'm going to tell you, as we read this, because it's poetry and because it's romantic poetry, there's a couple of words that we're going to read today that we don't normally read out loud in church. And so please put your 13-year-old boy away internally and just let the poetry be, uh, be what it is as you read it. So let's stand together out of the honor of reading God's Word. And we'll read uh, really kind of about the end of this couple's relationship or as they grow older. So here we go. Uh, Song of Solomon chapter 8, verse 5. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? I awakened you under the apple tree. There your mother brought you forth. There she who bore you brought you forth. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give love for all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister in the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build upon her a battlement of silver, and if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. I am a wall, and my breasts like towers. Then I became in his eyes as one who found peace. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He leased the vineyard to keepers. Everyone was to bring for its fruit a thousand silver coins. My own vineyard is before me. You, O Solomon, may have a thousand, and those who tend its fruit, two hundred. You who dwell in the gardens, the companions, listen for your voice. Let me hear it. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Kind of spicy language for church on a Sunday morning uh, in, in Song of Solomon chapter 8. But what we're seeing in this, like I said, is it's poetry about the romantic pursuit of a husband and a wife, of a man and a woman. And what we're seeing, especially in verse 5, what we see is really kind of the end of their days together. Who is this coming up from the wilderness 
leaning on her beloved. They're in their old age now. And they're at that space and time in their age when maybe their bodies just aren't cooperating with them quite like they used to. And the reason why they're leaning on each other isn't simply because they have love for one another, but they're leaning on one another because throughout all of their life, they've just taken one step together after another and one step together after another. Now they lean on one another to support one another. And when I'm thinking about this, I'm, I've been so blessed. And it's like I said a minute ago, Maybe the reason why this book never references God directly is because God has an intention for you to catch. And it's this idea that your relationship with the person you love, your relationship with your spouse, may be the clearest, best, most understandable picture someone has of who God is and what his love for us really can be. You guys could be the example for what what it looks like to have a deep, significant, and meaningful relationship with God. And this is a couple who have weathered the storm of the good times and the bad, the forgiveness and the confession, and they're leaning on one another in their old age because they've leaned on one another through their entire lives. One of the ways that I'm just terribly blessed is that my parents were married for 50 years. And I got to benefit from seeing the ins and outs and the ups and downs of their relationship. In this room right now are my mother-in-law and father-in-law. They're in the back of the room. And on June 27th, they will celebrate their 64th wedding anniversary. Can we say wow and just celebrate that? They're sitting right back there. And to be honest, I have to confess that when I think of a couple that has leaned on one another their entire lives, it's easy for me to see them leaning on one another. Like happens as you, as you get older, parts uh, aren't cooperating quite like they used to, so they both have to lean on one another to get where they're going. And so it's very cute to watch them walk down the hall. Many times they're leaning on each other because they have to, and that's good. And I tease them because I'm a mean son-in-law. I tease them that because they have to lean on each other a particular way in order to get moving, If they lean on each other the wrong way, instead of moving forward down the hall, they'll just walk in circles um, because it's just the way that... But I am so blessed and so privileged to have in my life an incredible example of a marriage that has lasted 64 years in my in-laws and in my parents, a marriage that has lasted 49 years. It lasted 49 years because my dad passed away. He would have been 50 or 51 or 52 Could you imagine how our world would change if you could figure out that level of faithfulness in your own marriage? Can you imagine how how this world would change if as you dated, you made it your goal Not just to have a good time. I hope you have a good time. Not just to get to know interesting people. I hope you get to know interesting people. But to become that person that people, when they look at the way you relate to others, they see Jesus in the relationship. They see success in the relationship. They see joy in the relationship. And in those moments when the relationship is on, its, on the rocks, and in, that, in those moments, because hard times are going to come, difficult times are coming, things are going get, to get difficult. When, when those difficult times come, imagine how our world would change if what they saw in you was an example of what Christ has done for us 
in the long-suffering, in the patience, in the endurance, in the forgiveness. Remember, Romans says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. What if in our marriages and our relationships and in our dating relationships, in those moments when we're single and looking, if what they saw in us was a picture of who He is rather than a reflection of who we are? You see, when you get to Song of Solomon chapter 8, Really what you've seen in the entire book are three principles that I'm going to cover really quickly that I think apply to all of our relationships, but they especially apply to our marriage relationships. And for those of you who aren't married yet or those of you who are looking or waiting or are single, I think these are the kinds of principles that if you can figure out how to practice them now and if you can find someone else who makes it their goal to practice these things too, then suddenly you've got a formula for something that's really magical. You've got a formula for something that's really lasting. You've got a formula for something that really has the opportunity to be a beautiful reflection of God's grace in your life, in their life, and into our world. So here are the three principles. They're simple to say. They're difficult to practice. But here's the, here's the three simple uh, principles. Here's the first one. Pursue one another. And you see this in the way Song of Solomon works. Pursue one another to give, not to take. Pursue one another to give, not to take. It's really tempting when we're dating to pursue someone, not because of what we can give to them, but because of what we can take from them. You might think financially about that. I'm pursuing them financially because, man, they got the bling, and I'm going to be good. I'm going to be set. If we can get together, this is going to be nice. I'll be arm candy, and they'll make all the money. It'll be great. Um, Instead of pursuing to give, we frequently pursue to get. It's true physically, right? Hey, I'm not really pursuing you because I'm interested in you. I'm pursuing you because, wow, you are, and I want, and we could. We're pursuing to get instead of give, but Scripture flips that principle on its head. Pursue one another to give and not to take. Look at Matthew chapter 6. This is a passage of Scripture you don't generally associate with relationships, but I think it matters inside our marriage relationships and inside our dating relationships. Verse 19, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Imagine how your marriage might change. If you were looking for ways to give to your spouse instead of take from your spouse, if you treasured your wife in ways that she understood and knew, if you treasured your husband in ways that made your devotion to one another deeper and stronger. Proverbs chapter 11 verse 25 says, Whoever waters will himself be watered. It's this idea of generosity, and frequently in Scripture when we read about generosity, we think about financial generosity, or we think about how do we give, or how do we help people who who can't help themselves? How can we be generous to people who need food or who need that kind of help? And those are all worthy ways to give, and those are all important, and I, I like all of that. I think that's great. I hope we cultivate that. But what if we gave first to our spouse? What if our first pursuit was to pursue our spouse to give and not to take. Imagine how different your physical, emotional, and spiritual relationship would be if in that moment 
that romantic moment. You came not to take something from someone, but to give something to someone. Philippians chapter 2 answers actually the next question. Well, Chad, how much am I supposed to give? You know, surely marriage is supposed to be 50-50. Well, no, I've heard that, that does, doesn't really work, right? It's not 50-50. Maybe it's 100% and 100%. Everybody's got to give 100%. Well, that math doesn't work, right? What if, what if I told you that, I mean, surely I, can, I could balance that if I get 50-50. I could balance that right there. And All right, this is going to be good, right? Watch, watch. We can balance it. Can we do that? See how hard it is? All right, nobody move. But your life's not like that, right? Your life isn't 50-50 ever. Sometimes my wife just needs a little more attention. And if I put enough pressure on the right side of that fulcrum, I can balance things out. I can give to her in a way that overcomes the deficit. And then there's going to be that season when my life is a little more challenging and my need is a little greater. And she can give in a way that puts the pressure in the right spot so we balance things out. So it's really not 100 and 100. It's really not 50 and 50. It's really both of us looking for ways to give to one another continuously out of the abundance of what God's given to us. See, that's the next question, right? How much should I give? In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says it like this in verse 17. He's actually talking spiritually to the church at Philippi. He says, he says uh, let's see, yes, and if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the service and sacrifice of your faith, I therein rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. So how much should I give? Maybe I should just give everything. And here's the challenge. We tend to look to people to be what fills us up. And as long as I look to people to be what fills me up, I will never have enough to give to fill up someone else. But if I will recognize the unending supply of grace, mercy, love, kindness, forgiveness, patience, justice, if I will never disconnect myself from all that which God has given to me, then I can with confidence pour myself out as a drink offering on the service and sacrifice of the faith of my spouse or the faith of my kids or the life of that person who I care about the most. I can give and I can give and I can give and ultimately get what God's designed for me. Pursue your spouse. Pursue one another to give and not to get. That's the first principle. The second principle is a little more complicated. Pursue one another to become, not to fix. Pursue one another to become, not to fix. Now, how many of you have been in those relationships where either you're the fixer or you're the one someone's trying to fix, right? Oh, I just love him. He's so cute. But we're going to work on this because he's just, he's into sports too much. Or we're, I just love him. He's so cute, but he cusses a little bit. Or we, I just love him. He just smokes too much. I just love him, but I just love him, but. And so instead of pursuing him to become like those things you admire in him, you pursue him to fix those things that are wrong with him. And at least in dating, doesn't that become this, whether you're a man or a woman, doesn't that just become this cycle of repetition where you pursue someone to fix until you realize they're not fixable and then you break up or you divorce and then you jump into the next relationship and you're pursuing to fix or be fixed? And guys, we're just as guilty of it as anybody. We're fixers by nature, right? If you're constantly pursuing someone for the purpose of fixing them, you'll always be disappointed. You'll always fail because you are not enough. 
And isn't that a problem we have in all of our relationships? We seek from one another that which only God can give. And if I spend all my time looking in my wife for that which only God can give me, then I am destined to doom our relationship. But if I will trust God to give to me and to fill me with His grace, love, kindness, mercy, then I have what, I, what, I, what it takes to give. But beyond the giving, I can look to my wife Instead of all, you know, there's those moments when you're dating where there's that cute thing that they do and it's just so endearing and I just love it so much and then you're two years in and you've seen that cute thing so many times it's just sort of ridiculous at this point. You've experienced that and you're like, okay, that's not funny anymore. Stop saying it. Stop doing it. It's not cute anymore. I can't believe you said that out loud and in front of our friends. If we're pursuing one another to become rather than to fix And what that allows me to do is to see those qualities in my spouse that I admire the most. And the the weaknesses in me that I go, man, I wish, I wish I could be like her in that. And instead of trying to fix her to fix me, I try to become more like her in her relationship with God and with others. Genesis 2.24, actually this is before sin, this is back when God established marriage. Do you remember what it says? For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and the two shall become one flesh, right? There's an old idea that, that for a believer that God should be number one and your spouse should be number two and, and then you should be third and you should be serving. It's that Jesus, others, you idea only applied to marriage. But that's not what Scripture really teaches us. Scripture really teaches us that in our relationships between a husband and a wife and God, it's like this beautiful love triangle. That God loves us both and there are some things in my life that I can't get on my own and that my spouse can't provide for me that only God can give. And as long as I'm looking to my spouse to provide that thing, I will always be dissatisfied. But in this beautiful love triangle, if it's that God is number one in my life and my spouse and I are becoming one, then the closer I grow to God and the closer she grows to God, the closer we grow to one another. And so if the two are becoming one, that becoming of one is all in relationship to who God is and what God has done in our lives and Him giving to us what only He can provide us receiving it, and then gladly, willfully giving it to one another. Pursue one another to become and not, for, and not to fix. It's actually one of the most challenging verses in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul looks at us, and he says this. It's such a bold statement. He looks at the church at Corinth and says, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Could you imagine having the boldness to say that to someone? Hey, if you'll just do what I'm doing, you'll be doing what Jesus did. What if I could look to my spouse and take those qualities of my spouse that I admire the most, the things that challenge me to become more Christ-like? What if I could imitate that? Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. It's another Philippians passage. Paul's talking again. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk because you have us as an example to follow after. Imagine how your marriage would be different if maybe, guys, you had a date this week, and before you did the date, you had a little homework, and you just took a moment to write down all the things you admire about your spouse, the things that you're just not that good at or those things that you just can't do. 
And then on the date, while you're eating your blooming onion, you just looked at each other and said, hey, let me tell you, let me tell you the things about you that I admire, but it's not just that I admire them. I would love to learn to imitate that in you. I, instead of trying to fix all the broken things in you, here's the things about you I'd like to become. And instead of you focusing on all the stuff that needs to be fixed in me, what if we could, well, let's join in following an example and let's become something together where God is another, number one and we're becoming one as we grow closer to him. And then we can take that a step further. I've already said, I had a tremendous privilege of seeing a marriage that's lasted for 64 years. And I have the tremendous privilege of having lived in a family with a mom and dad whose marriage lasted 49 years. If we're trying to become rather than fix, imagine being able to look to your children someday with honesty and integrity saying, I want you to build your life your way. But in these things, the way we relate as a husband and wife, the way we set an example for other believers, imagine having the integrity and honesty to be able to say, and this, this is worth you imitating. You should, you should pay attention to this. Can you imagine having the guts and the honesty and the, and the integrity to be able to look at your kids and say, hey, if you guys will have a relationship like this, It'll be every bit of 64 years, if God lets you. Pursue one another to give, not to take. Pursue one another to become, not to fix. And here's the last one. This might be the hardest. Pursue one another to forgive and not to condemn. You know, when you're in a long-time relationship, it's just easy to see each other's faults, right? It's easy to be annoying to one another. It's easy to get under each other's nerves, on everybody's last nerves. But I can assure you of this, that the length and strength of every relationship is measured by your willingness to confess when you're wrong and to forgive when you've been wronged. In the moment that you harden your heart enough to say, I will not forgive, for whatever the offense is, in the moment that you've done that, it's like you've set a stopwatch on when that relationship will end. Because we're human, and at some point, we're all going to make a mistake. The question isn't, if we're going to make the mistake, it's when will it be and how bad will it be? And so if we look at each other without a willingness to forgive and only a willingness to condemn, then the relationship is doomed. But remember what Romans says? The book of Romans says that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. In our kindness towards one another, in that moment where our experience doesn't match our expectation... There's this distance that develops because our experience didn't match our expectation. And in the middle, we get to fill in the blank with something. And we can either fill in the blank with something positive or something negative. And it's human nature to fill in the blank with something negative rather than something positive. It's always, when we don't know what's really going on, we always fill in the blank with something bad rather than something good. The illustration I like to use is the boogeyman. The thing that goes bump in the night is always the boogeyman because you don't know exactly what it is. Only one night out of the year is it something good. Only one night out of the year is it Santa Claus, right? And you believe it's Santa Claus because somebody told you good stuff's coming tomorrow and Santa Claus is the one to, uh, one to bring it. So that sound you just heard outside, it's not something bad, it's something good. In our relationships, the same things happen. We have our experiences, we have our expectations. When they come together, everything's fine. 
But when there's a distance between our experience and our expectations, we can fill in the blank with something negative or something positive. And you know what happens when I'm wrong and I'm quick to confess it to my bride? The distance, is, it, it diminishes. And you know what happens when my bride does something wrong and I'm quick to forgive? The distance diminishes. When I know I'm about to do something that causes her experience and her expectation for those things not to match, I'm either quick to run to her and confess it or explain it or describe it. Or if it's a temptation I shouldn't stepped into in the first place, I'm quick to avoid the temptation because I don't want the distance to develop in the first place. Pursue one another to forgive and not to condemn. And then when I think about those three things in relationship to this beautiful book of poetry about the relationship between a man and a woman, and I recognize, well, it didn't really mention God anywhere, except, isn't that what Jesus did for us? Didn't he pursue us to give and not to take. He left heaven to come serve us. He gave up his righteousness to be accused of crimes he didn't commit. He was punished on the cross for my sin. He gave instead of took. He didn't come to fix me. He came to make a way for me to be brand new so that I could become a son of God, so that I could be adopted into his family and become like who he is in relationship to God. He didn't come to condemn. He came to forgive. And the end result of that forgiveness is a right relationship with him. And now I have in me the ability to give that kind of love to the people around me. So whether you're waiting or dating, whether you're looking or married, your relationship can be a picture of the relationship God has with his people. And it's really better than that. You can have the kind of relationship with your heavenly father that makes all things new. Let me invite you to bow your head and close your eyes. Over the next few minutes, Brandon's going to come and play, and we're going to sing some things. I'm going to ask Andrew Wade to come up here in just a few minutes so that we can have a special prayer time for our students as they go off to, to camp this week, and he'll explain more about that. But between now and then, as the music plays, maybe you need to sing, but maybe not. Maybe what you need to do is pray. Maybe you need to come to this altar and say, I've been pursuing people, hoping that they would give to me what only God can. There's going to be people all over this room at every entrance that would be willing to pray with you or talk with you about what that looks like for you to place your faith in Christ and to ask God to do in your heart and your life what only He can do. Maybe you're a married couple and you're struggling. Maybe you just need to bring your struggles before your Heavenly Father and just right where you are or at this altar or with the people who are standing around the room, maybe what you need to do is just take a moment to pray and to confess please forgive me. I want to do better. I want to be the person who gives. And there's so much about you I would love to become. And so would you please forgive me? And I want to forgive you as we do this.
So maybe there's a conversation like that. Maybe this room is the start of a conversation like that that just continues throughout the week. But as this invitation takes place, I hope that you'll listen to God's voice and that you'll move according to his word and that you'll take, take a moment to just say, Father, I, I give myself to you. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. And I'm so grateful for the life and the love that you've given to us through your son, Jesus. I pray that each and every person in this room, that with our, with our human relationships, that we, wouldn't look into, that we wouldn't look for people to give to us what only you can give. And so today, if there's someone who needs to place their faith in Christ, I pray that they would. And for each marriage here, I pray that you would strengthen it, that you would let us be the people who pursue to give, to become, and to forgive that you would help us to follow in your footsteps, that we would have the kinds of relationships that are worthy of imitation and that demonstrate your passion and loving kindness for the world around us. For those who are single, I pray that you would give them confidence in your love for them, that you would give them hope that they are fearfully and wonderfully made and that they have the privilege and pleasure of being able to serve you in whatever capacity you've given to them. Lead them to just simply have faith in you. Father, for us all, let us honor you well. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.